Welcome to Talking Success with Asma Mir in partnership with Withers, the international law firm. Every day we're being influenced. Every day you're changing. Be inspired. And that's when I had to make a decision. What next? I'm living the dream. I just want that to last. <laughs> I'm Asma Mir, and this is the podcast where successful people reveal the defining moments of their careers and indeed their lives. Because we all face moments of crisis, it's how we respond that makes all the difference. I really want to look back and feel proud that I was part of a change, I was part of a group of women that uh, broke ceilings, no matter how slowly it unfolded. Today, I'm speaking with Neha Narkade. She co-created an open source messaging system called Apache Kafka that changed the way many websites are run and went on to co-found Confluent, a software company which is valued at $17 billion today. Neha, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Asma. I'm excited to be here today. Um, Let's start with a big question, if we may. If you could choose anyone from any era as a business advisor, who would it be and why? That's an interesting one. I probably would say one of the business advisors I would love to talk to is Satya Nadella. You know, the way he navigated the transformation of Microsoft to the cloud computing era is just something to uh, be viewed from a distance um, with great inspiration. That's a great answer. I think it's fair to say that you're known for, well, what you did is you looked at a really crucial problem and you found an innovation, which is extremely useful and now widely used. Apache Kafka is a very crucial real-time software used by companies like Pinterest and the New York Times, Airbnb, Etsy, Barclays, Netflix. I mean, there's, there's a huge, huge list. Um, if you can, if you can imagine a listener who doesn't know much about tech, in fact, you don't need to imagine a listener, imagine me. Um, and can you explain why Apache Kafka was such a significant creation in a way that would make sense to someone listening like that? Sure. So before Apache Kafka, your product experiences were like a picture album. You could flip through the pictures, but never fast enough to relive the story. After Kafka, your experiences are more akin to a video, you know, a super fast stream of pictures that you don't have to flip through manually. And not only that, but a video that you can stream as the story is being filmed in the moment. And we know how that dramatically changes the user experience and makes it interactive. So that is the impact of Kafka and businesses all around the world is putting their data in motion and uh, enabling them to create interactive products that were just never possible before. This kind of idea of problem solving, have you always been a problem solver? I mean, if you think back to your childhood, is it something that you were kind of drawn to doing? You would see something and you would think, well, how can I fix this? I was a very curious and self-taught kid. I really loved learning anything, be it gymnastics or art. In fact, when I got a chance to use a computer, it was about eight or nine years old. I was fascinated. You know, I didn't have formal training until I was 15 or so. So I just used it to play video games and write and tinker around. I remember being most motivated when I could build something and really learn something new from that experience. So I think I was a curious and self-taught kid, not sure if I was a very good problem solver or a wizard kid of some sort. (laughs) 
Um, and was it something that was um, that was encouraged in you by your family? Absolutely. Uh, both my parents really encouraged me to develop a growth mindset and really encouraged me to be ambitious. And I think that helped me uh, a lot, even on my entrepreneurial journey, is to know that you know, even though I don't know something as a first-time entrepreneur, I could be self-taught and I could really grow in that role if I tried hard enough. So persistence and determination really was something they encouraged and taught me. Now, in this series, we've spoken to many people who have grown up in one country and then gone to work and made their career in, in another. And I suppose you, you are one of them. You grew up in India. You were educated there. Um, but then you continued your education in America at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Did you find it easy to adapt to a completely new country? And, and what did you take from that experience? I think there were several adjustments, including and beyond the proverbial culture shock, you know, being independent for the first time, coming to a country that I everything differently than my home country, including driving on the wrong side of the road. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Studying in a university that taught computer science differently than the way I was taught before. You know, looking for a job to cover the tuition, figuring out how to do grocery shopping without a car. But there were other cultural factors too that made Georgia Tech a tough transition. You know, in Atlanta, people had guns. It wasn't safe to take the metro, walk back home later in the evening. Nothing really like the culture of my hometown. So there was a lot of uncertainty that led to personal growth. At the same time, I'd say that I'm really grateful for all the opportunities this country has offered me in the last 15 years and the experiences of my home country that allowed me to navigate this change. Mm. And do you think it's an asset um, to someone in your uh, position, uh, an, an entrepreneur, a successful leader in business to have experience of more than one country? I believe so. You know, as an immigrant, um, I've learned that you don't take anything for granted and you know that you come with nothing and you have a lot to do in a wrong road ahead for you to travel on. And that really changes your entrepreneurial journey, I think, uh, because there's so much to learn. You come from nothing. You have a really big company, hopefully, to build. And that takes some amount of humility, um, knowing that you need to work hard to achieve something, and a lot of determination, really, that's needed to come to a new country, hopefully with, you know, nothing else, really, and be self-made on that journey. You joined the business and professionals networking site, uh, LinkedIn, of course, that we all know as a software engineer. You rose through the ranks, you left there, you co-created Apache Kafka, um, I'm really interested, actually, in the kind of process of collaboration that resulted in the creation of this software, not not from a so much from a tech point of view, because, you know, that might be um, more difficult for the average listener to understand. But just really the kind of the process, who were the people, how long did it take, that kind of thing? Sure. You know, I was part of a team that was tasked with building and bringing LinkedIn's software infrastructure up to speed with our users' expectations. And so a small team of three engineers, including myself and Jay Krebs and June Rao from LinkedIn, we built Apache Kafka, and we didn't really start by thinking that we wanted to build something new. We were trying to be lazy and, you know, try to look outside 
in the tech world to see if anyone else had solved the problem that we could just use and solve LinkedIn's problem. But we realized that there wasn't a solution out there because it was really a new trend happening in the world and at LinkedIn of every company trying to become a software company, which means putting data in motion at a very large scale. And we thought, you know, LinkedIn is not the only company that would find this useful given it's a broader trend in the industry. So we open sourced it. Kafka became very popular in maybe short three or four years since we created it. And I figured that, you know, in order to fully realize the potential of Kafka, we needed a real business tracking it. So four years down the line, since I started working on the team, I asked my teammates who agreed to start Confluent with me. And that was, I think, seven years ago. And here we are today. Confluent is a pretty big company now. Mm, well, it certainly is. You are a really, really busy woman. Uh, Confluent went public. Uh, you're a board director. You're an investor and advisor to a number of firms. How do you kind of divide up your time? Yeah, you know, that, that's that's a great question. Um, I've always been a disciplined person. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm fantastic with time management. It just means that, you know, I'm someone who um, is motivated by being productive. So I do everything, you know, in my power to make that happen. So some amount of, you know, time management, some amount of discipline and just sort of a core need to be productive, to be happy, I think really allows me to manage all the different priorities, including, you know, having time for family and, and my young child um, to sort of create a, a more balanced environment that will keep me, you know, joyful and happy, really. Yeah. Well, it's not easy. Um, Forbes called you one of America's richest self-made women. Um, and I wonder how, how does that make you feel when when you hear that I mean I don't know do you kind of bulk it you know when when people talk about you know money and financial success or do you see yourself more as a successful businesswoman yes I wish the narrative was around self-made ceiling breakers and less around wealth I think my personal grow goal in continuing the entrepreneur journey despite a big win is to really become a role model, you know, to show young women of color that you can swing for the fences too, that you can weather the headwinds and fly high. And I really want to look back and feel proud that I was part of a change. I was part of a group of women that uh, broke ceilings, no matter how slowly it unfolded. Are there many women that look like you? A report last year said that women make up under a third of the people working in tech. Um, and I know, as you say, you know, it's just it's something that you feel uh, uh, passionately ab- about. Are there many women, though, not just women, but women who look like you in the industry? You know, the gender parity problem is, I think, rooted in years of expecting women to fit the mold rather than changing the mold itself. Mm. I think the tech industry has a deeper problem of inclusivity and bias and the seeds of which are sown in my perspective at a very young age. You know, for instance, do high schools encourage ambitious girls in STEM? Do we promote the Barbies or the Wonder Women? 
you know, do we as a culture celebrate successful women in different walks of life? And do governments and companies offer generous maternity leaves and focus on gender parity in hiring HR practices? I think the biggest change really is going to come from embracing the fact that this is a collective responsibility that goes beyond relying on women to push these barriers alone. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why there actually aren't many people that look like me in the industry. And in particular, you know, when I say me, it's immigrant women of color. This is like a very small group of people, but I think this is a very collective responsibility in changing that. When you've worked in this, um, throughout the time you've worked in this uh, area, uh, perhaps when you were less well-known, like less successful, you were just kind of, you know, plugging away, working away. Were people surprised that it was you? You know, perhaps, I don't know, they came into a room and it was like, oh, hello. Have you had any experiences like that? I mean, I know I have. I don't work in tech, but, you know, in my own area, um, you know, over the years I've had that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Every step of the way, I would say from the time I was part of this team that, you know, envisioned a problem a very different way to, you know, all these tech conferences where you meet people and even customers of Confluent where you go and pitch them and venture capitalists to raise money for your company. I think every step of the way, the questions were, oh, I'm, I'm so surprised that you're part of this team or you know, um, what impact did you have? How much uh, contribution did you make to the project? And uh, just looks of surprises, um, sometimes, you know, in a positive way. Um, this happened at every step along the way. And I struggled with it in the first few years, really, of my career. And then later on, I decided that I'm going to have to wear these flaps around my eyes and I'm going to have to be a little <laughs> deaf in order to really survive and change the status quo. And that's exactly what I do today because th there are still experiences that I have um, when I meet people. Really? Still? That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you're like, you know, <laughs> Forbes says you're one of America's richest self-made women, most successful in the, you know, in the, in the, in the area. Yeah. I think that's because uh, there aren't a lot of, young women of color out there. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, in my experience of seeing that race and age um, have just as much of a factor to play than uh, purely gender. And um, that's actually a pretty hard learned lesson and not very uh, motivating um, deep down inside. But I really do um, think I'm an optimist and I believe that, you know, some of us have to exist and flourish in order for the status quo to change. Mm. Um, I was watching an online event that, that you did um, where you were kind of talking to lots of, you know, lots of young women in the audience. And, and I wonder, have you been able to kind of mentor any of them? How, how do you, how do you kind of boost them? I know you boost them just by existing, but are there any other ways that you've kind of, you know, made connections? Yeah. You know, when I uh, worked at Confluent, I was more aware of the minorities who looked like me. Um, I make it a point to do podcasts and conference talks to really, you know, show women that there is a story here that you can follow, that you can follow in my footsteps to kind of get there. And um, as, as I get a lot of inbound messages from young women who 
really want some kind of advice and in some form of inspiration and i make some time in my busy schedule as well to you know sort of schedule time for office hours of sort and i think you know all of those little um actions might go somewhat along the way in making an impact in someone's mm. life mm. um is there so- is there anything that you have i mean it sounds like you've had to kind of adapt along the way we all do in life and in business clearly you know we all grow as people I mean is there kind of one thing that you have taken on board that you've really changed about your outlook the way that you conduct yourself the way that you see people uh, over the last 10-15 years or so that illustrates how you have grown Yes, I believe, uh, you know, developing and deeply believing in the growth mindset has really helped me. I started with a background in databases and learned distributed systems. I started with distributed systems and then learned how to start a company and then how to grow a company and start one again. Um, and I think that, you know, deep down, I do believe that if you try hard enough, and if you read enough and if you ask questions enough that you really can grow yourself and you really can learn something new and i think that alone that's probably the single most influential factor in helping me navigate so many changes in my life including immigrating to a new country mm. tell me a bit about your decision making process that's something we find very interesting in this series do you have a kind of drop a list? Do you have pros and cons? Do you have a sounding board, a person that you, um, who you really rely on? Do you agonize over decisions or are you, do you have an instinct? I center my decision-making around uh, regret minimization and intuition along with having a very, um, you know, good sounding board in my husband. I center it around realizing the fact that there are many factors outside of my control that will influence the success of my decision and embracing the fact that my peace of mind is rooted in never looking back to regret Mm -hmm. something and optimizing for enjoying the process rather than the outcome. I think, you know, all of these factors uh, play a role in my decision-making progress, but I would say the center of that is regret minimization. Regret minimization. (laughs) Yes. That's fantastic. I love that. I think that's a very healthy attitude. Is that something that you have learned to, to kind of adopt? I think somewhere along the way, I might have learned to adopt it. But if I remember correctly, that's just how my brain has worked. Uh, you know, the the amount I can remember in the past. So even coming to the US, it was, hey, if I don't do that, if I don't follow my intuition, I'm mm-hmm. really going to regret this opportunity. And um, even leaving a cushy job to start a company is is sort of also centered around the fact that if someone else starts the Kafka company, that's going to be a pretty big regret rather than the team that created it. So I think it's always sort of been my way of thinking about things. Uh, perhaps the FOMO, you know, fear of missing out <laughs> is another way of putting my, you know, decision-making process in practice. Um, is there a decision though that, that you have regretted or that you did not enjoy making? You know, I didn't enjoy the decision to leave my family behind to immigrate to a foreign country. 
And as a new parent now, I realize how hard it must have been for my parents to encourage me to pursue my dreams thousands of miles away from them. So I think that is one decision that I always wonder about. Um, and I really didn't enjoy making and even don't enjoy it today. No, I know. I can imagine. Is there a point in your career or a barometer by which you measure your success? You know, as a leader, the most rewarding thing is pulling people up, helping them realize their potential in working towards the goal. And it took me some time to learn that that is really what I find to be the most fulfilling thing. But I also, you know, I, I feel the most fulfilled if there is a barometer while helping other minorities advance in their respective careers because of uh, so much, I'm much closer to that experience than any other experience that I have had in my career. So I would say, I would say pulling people up um, that look like me has been particularly fulfilling. Mm, I bet. Where do you think you would like to go next? Because, you know, you sound again like someone who likes to have a lot on her plate, that you are looking for a challenge, you're looking for a problem to solve, perhaps. Where do you think that direction might be? I've been very, um, you know, grateful for the opportunities I've had. I think um, it takes a lot of factors to be where I am today. And I would like to, you know, the next step function in the impact that I could create is continuing my husband and my early philanthropic journey and devoting more time to it down the line. We're building schools in Northeast India, which uh, doesn't get a lot of philanthropic or government resources, and helping young children with better schooling, college education facilities. In fact, we want to build hundreds of schools across India. And my hope is that we will be able to extend that philanthropic impact beyond this project to the rest of the world. And I really do wish um, that in the years to come, I'm able to devote more time to it. And what kind of involvement do you have in that? Are you able to kind of watch on a kind of weekly, monthly basis, you know, how, how the kids at the school are doing? Yes, uh, we're able to watch on a monthly basis. We've uh, partnered with an organization that have volunteers on the ground that, that keep us updated. The nicest thing is to get letters and pictures from the facilities um, about you know the progress being made to construct these schools and the progress being made in in the lives of children, and um, I think uh, you know there isn't another joy other than parenting and this that I can think of uh, in in really making you know increasing my happiness per se. Yeah, we have some uh, more kind of lighter, quick fire. Uh, questions. First of all, Neha, what what qualities do you admire in other people? Humility. What do people often wrongly assume about the work of a software engineer, would you think? That we sit alone in a room and code all day. (laughs) It's like a (laughs) t-shirt, code all day. I love it. What do you think they often wrongly assume about the work of an investor? That we are there to optimize only for profit. What do you think is the skill that got you where you are today? A growth mindset. What's the most unusual place you've ever been? Hmm. I think in Cambodia. What's your favorite time of the work day? 4.30 in the morning. 
Oh, what? No way. <laughs> <laughs> That's after eight hours of sleep, though. <laughs> if you hadn't worked in tech, what would you like to have done, do you think? Something completely different. I think pursued arts. Okay. Specifically, which arts? I think dance and music. What do you think tech needs more of? Inclusivity. Fantastic. Neha, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Asma, for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was great fun. Well, I love speaking with Neha. She talked about the quality she liked in other people the most being humility. She's one of the most you know, successful women, people in tech in America, and yet she's still very, very humble. You know, she misses her mom and dad. She talks about her husband and her child. She's very grounded. Um, she wants to give back. She measures her success by how she's helping other people, how she's inspiring them. And she wants to see more women who look like her in the room. And I have to say, it's just another one of those people you speak to and you yourself feel very inspired by her. You can find out more about Withers on their website, withersworldwide.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please follow us on your podcast app to get updates on the latest episodes or leave us a review. Next week, I'll be talking to Ron Dennis about his impressive career in Formula One, career transitions, and how his passion for winning has got him where he is today. Talking Success is a Feast Collective production. The producer is Leo Schick. The executive producer is Kate Taylor. And I'm Asma Mir. Goodbye.